Hey, if you've got a Bible there, can you turn with me really quickly to Judges uh, chapter 3? I want to share some thoughts with you this morning, but um, before I do, I just want to lay a little bit of a, a foundation. In Judges chapter 3, we've got a very interesting uh, picture, a very interesting couple of passages. And uh, so I want you to stick with me today. Uh, this is my third attempt to try to get this happening. The um, first time the video cut out, uh, second time I came in here, I preached and the battery ran dead. And so it's interesting that we're talking about fighting and resilience and a battle. So anyway, I believe God's got something for you. So if you can come along with me in Judges chapter 3, please, starting in verse 1 and verse 2. And it says this. It says, Now these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. Israel have gone in and they've taken the promised land and they've had their battles and they've fought some uh, battles and they've won some battles and they've learned some lessons along the way. Sometimes things went their way, sometimes they didn't. And uh, they've been basically going on a journey with God. And here they are at this place and at this particular juncture they've had uh, a, a bit of peace. They've had a, a, a little bit of uh, a quiet spell. And it says here that God left certain nations in that land. And it says, the Lord left them that he might test Israel by them. And that is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. This was only so that the generation of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. At least those who had not formerly known it. Let me say that again. This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. So there's this bunch of people there. And if I can put it into modern terms, I guess they've had it pretty easy. They haven't really had to fight for much of what they were living in at the time. And so God says, I'm going to allow there to be certain enemies there. I'm going to allow certain situations to happen because the people that don't know war, the people that haven't had to fight for much, I want them to learn what it means to fight for something. I want them to learn what it means to fight. In other words, there are lessons and things that they needed to learn that they were not going to learn in peacetime. There were things that they needed to see and they weren't going to be able to see them when there was no pressure, when there was no opposition, when there was no tension, when there was no battle to have to fight. You know, how many of you realise right now, and I'm sure you do, that we're in a bit of a battle at the moment. We're calling it this COVID-19 battle. And when you turn on the news and you listen to commentators, it's interesting because they're using this word war. They're actually saying we're at war. Uh, we're at war with this disease. There's a battle being fought on the economical front right now in the realm of finance. There's a battle being fought medically uh, for the health of, of, of people, not just in this nation, but other nations. Now that people are in isolation, I read the other day that uh, things like domestic violence and mental illness are going up. So there's a battle going on on that front as well. And there are so many fronts and so many angles to this battle. And I don't believe for a second that God caused COVID-19 and I don't believe that he sends things like that into the world to teach us lessons. I don't believe that. But what I do believe is this, that God uses all things for the glory of himself and for the benefit of those that love him. God can look at any situation and scenario and he'll squeeze something good out of it, even if it's something that was originally intended for evil by the devil or by another human being. God can take that situation and he can squeeze goodness out of it and he'll turn it around and he'll do a flip on it and he'll use it for good. What was meant to destroy and to harm and to hurt can be used for good. God can take that thing and use it to show us stuff and teach us valuable lessons. How many of you know that there are a lot of lessons that you learn in wartime that you don't learn in peacetime? 
How many of us realise that there are some things that we don't see about ourselves, things that we don't see about the world around us? There are lessons that we learn about ourselves under pressure in wartime that we don't learn in peacetime when everything's going well. There are lessons that we're learning right now about the world, about uh, the economic world. We're seeing businesses that we thought were flush with cash, we thought would survive and be around in 10, 20, 50 years' time, and all of a sudden we're seeing that in a couple of weeks without work, wow, a lot of these, these financial institutions are crumbling and businesses are falling apart and so on. So we're learning a lot of things about ourselves. We're learning a lot of things about the world in which we live through this situation. We're gravitating back towards real values in wartime. When you look at wartime, people gravitate back towards what are actual real values. We have values that we wish we had, and sometimes we live a life that uh, exhibits the values that we wish we had, but under pressure we tend to go back to the values in our life that are real values. So in, in peacetime we might not necessarily see what the real values are. Under pressure, the real values tend to come to the surface and we gravitate back towards our real values. In wartime and under pressure, we reevaluate what our real needs are. It's interesting that what we thought we needed, all of a sudden we find ourselves in this world where we've been stripped bare and things have been taken away from us, privileges uh, and opportunities, and now we find ourselves realising maybe that, you know, there were some things that, that, that six weeks ago we thought we couldn't live without. And now all of a sudden we find ourselves surviving and living and we realise that they were wants, they weren't needs. At that moment I thought it was a need, but right now I realise that it was just simply a want. You know, without the pressure of this moment, without the pressure of wartime, maybe we don't notice some of those things, but we're in this season and this opportunity where we're getting to notice these things. In that new environment, if we don't make the necessary adjustments and changes to adapt to the times, then we're going to get caught out. Wartime and battles disrupt the flow of normal humanity. They disrupt the natural and normal flow of life. And what's happened right now, uh, we all know, has disrupted the natural flow of life. We have all been impacted in some way, shape or form and continue to be impacted by what is going on right now. You know, I read there in Judges that God actually allowed some of these things to come against his people in the book of Judges. God allowed some of this resistance to be there, some of these external pressures, these wars, these battles to be there because he wanted those that hadn't had to fight for much to learn how to fight for stuff. And I think it's fair to say when I look at uh, our nation right now, I can only talk for myself, I look at my spiritual heritage. Myself, I haven't really had to fight for that much. I've been born and blessed into a nation where I can gather um, uh, freely with people, where I can talk about Jesus, where I can purchase a Bible on the streets, I can turn on TV and I can see Jesus, I can hear Jesus on the radio. Spiritually speaking, we haven't really had to fight for that much in this nation. Previous generations, perhaps, but I can tell you right now, this generation we're living in now, spiritually speaking, we have got it pretty easy. But now we find ourselves in a battle. Now we find ourselves in a situation where we're beginning to have to fight for things. And from a Christian perspective, there's a battle going on when it comes to our spiritual vitality, our passion, our faith and our walk with God. Things are being challenged. What was normal seven weeks ago is all of a sudden not normal now. You know, the habits, the things that we just did uh, out of habit, we're finding ourselves in a different world now where maybe those habits have been disrupted. I was in here uh, the other night while uh, uh, with Daniel, our tech guy, and uh, my computer was not hooking up to the printer 
uh, out the back there and he came and he sat down and he punched a few numbers in and before you know it, I just couldn't believe how quick he did it. Um, he's just punching in one, zero, zero, dot, this, this, this and all these numbers and, and my head's spinning. And I ended up saying to him, Daniel, how do you know all these numbers? You're not getting a manual and you're not looking. And he, he said, well, when I left school, he said, I started doing this kind of stuff, just sort of uh, troubleshooting uh, on computers and just repairing stuff. So he sat down and he just did it all basically by habit. It just came natural to him. He didn't even really need to think about it. And, you know, maybe some of us, our spiritual life has been so uh, easy that maybe for a lot of us, we really haven't had to think too much about it. We've had habit patterns and things that we've been able to get away with that have caused us to almost go on autopilot with our spirituality. And now we find ourselves in a position where that whole world has been disrupted. It's been disrupted. There's some pressure there and the world looks different. And when we find ourselves in this new and different world, we need to adjust to the new world that we find ourselves in. If we don't make the necessary adjustments, then we're going to get caught out. And my daughter was telling me yesterday a funny story. She was on Zoom with a friend of hers uh, for, uh, from school because obviously they're not at school and they're meeting. So she's on Zoom and she said, Dad, you're not going to believe what happened. So embarrassing. Uh, her friend's mother walked into the room and obviously her friend's mother was not aware of what was going on in the room. She was not aware of the environment around her. And so she walks in and next thing you know, she starts talking to her daughter about how last time she went to the toilet, guess what? You forgot to flush the toilet. Now, I don't want to know how she knew that. It's obvious that she knew that. There was evidence there to suggest that there had been a crime previously committed and nobody had cleaned it up. And so here she is saying this to her daughter, or so she thought, what she didn't realise was there are other people on the Zoom and they're listening to this conversation. And my daughter was telling me uh, and relaying this story to me and thought it was extremely, extremely funny. But there's a classic story of a woman who just was not aware of the changes in the environment and guess what? She actually got uh, caught out. And by the way, not only did my daughter find out about it, she told me and my wife, and now to uh, add injury to insult, I guess here I am, telling all of you and if you're watching and just by chance you happen to have chastised your daughter the other day while she was on a zoom call and telling her told her that she didn't flush the toilet just in case please don't contact me i don't know your name i don't know who you are you're still anonymous to me but what a great story of somebody that did not adjust to the environment that they found themselves in you know god allows times of battle because he knows that there are some things he needs us to know that we're never going to learn and we're probably not going to be open to see without the battle. We're not open to see without the battle. You know, I come across a statistic this week, a, 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 a quite alarming statistic, to be brutally honest, about Christianity in the West. And you know what they found? You know where the hardest place is for a Western Christian to live out their faith? It's actually in their own home. And we're not just talking about people that may be married to someone that doesn't share their faith. We're talking about families. The hardest place for them, people that, that, that believe together, but the hardest place for them to actually live out their faith, engage with their faith, is actually in their very own family home. Isn't that ironic that here we are in a season in the West where we find ourselves all of a sudden unable to go to church, unable to meet on a Sunday or whatever time you meet in a building with all those people that share a common faith. It's funny that we find ourselves in a situation where we can't go to the place where it's the easiest to live out our faith. And we're being isolated to the place where it's the most difficult for us to live out and engage 
with our faith? Is it coincidence? Is it ironic? Or could there be the fingerprints of God on that? He's, he's, he's put us in a position where, you know, living it out here is, is easy. We've spent so much time perfecting it and working out how to do church and be in church and so on. And we get in here and, you know what, it's easy to resolve conflict with somebody at that church that has the same values and so on. It's easy to pray at church. It's easy to lift your hands and worship at church. It's easy to pick up your Bible and engage and read at church. It's easy to receive prayer at church. It's easy to come up the front and humble yourself and, 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 and say to somebody, you know, I really need God in this moment. It's easy to engage spiritually at church, but we can't go to church anymore. We're isolated to the place where it's the most difficult to engage in most of those activities. And I'd go a step further and say it's not just home, but it would be obviously probably in our workplaces and and spaces like that as well. So all of a sudden we're removed from the place where it's the easiest to engage with Jesus. Where it's the easiest to live out our faith. And we've been placed in a space where it's the most difficult to do that. Can you see the fingerprints of God in that? I wonder what God might want to be teaching us. I wonder what God might want to be saying to us. I wonder what God might be wanting us to learn through this. I wonder what God might be wanting us to see. That in peacetime, perhaps we would never have been able to see it. Let me throw a thought at you. In Matthew chapter... 26. We've got this interesting story. You'll find it in Mark 14 as well. A few weeks ago when I was getting ready for my Easter message, I read from uh, the Garden of Gethsemane through to the crucifixion of Jesus. I read it in all four Gospels. And a statement stuck out to me, and I haven't been able to get it out of my head for about three weeks now. And this is it. Jesus is taken from the Garden of Gethsemane by a mob, and he's placed before the religious council, the leaders there. And they're looking for a reason to have him crucified. Under Roman law, under Jewish law, sorry, they couldn't crucify Jesus. They couldn't kill him. Romans were the only ones that could crucify him. But they knew that they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And the only way they could get rid of Jesus, actually kill Jesus, was they had to have something that would give them enough traction to begin the process towards the cross, towards Jesus' demise, his death. And we pick up the story in Matthew 26. They get a bunch of people in who give false testimony, but the testimony, there's just not anything in there meaty enough to grab a hold of and to run with And in Matthew 26, verse 59 to 62, it says this. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They wanted to put him to death. It was their agenda and their goal. What they didn't understand, it was God's agenda and God's goal as well. But they wanted to put him to death. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. What couldn't they find? A decent testimony. They couldn't find anything that would give their story traction to get them to the ultimate goal, which was the the death of Jesus Christ. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow pointing at Jesus, they said, he said this, I'm going to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it? These men testify against you. You know that? Testimony was false testimony. You go to the book of John chapter 2. Jesus has a moment where he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. They're selling money. They're making profit in the temple. They, they, they turn the church into something it shouldn't be. And so Jesus goes into the temple and he starts throwing away uh, the tables and upturning it and everything like this. And then they said to him, who do you think you are that you can do something like this? What sign are you going to show us? And Jesus makes this statement. And here's what he says. He says, you destroyed this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. 
And then they say it took 46 years to build this temple. And you think they missed what he said. Hang on. He didn't say I was going to destroy this temple. He said, you, I'm speaking to, you destroyed this temple, my body. I raised it in three days. But as so often, the words of Jesus got twisted and used against him. And so by this stage, they're standing before the religious leaders and they're saying Jesus said he'd destroy the temple. Now, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, you read this later in Matthew and Mark also records it, that the passerbyers were walking past Jesus on the cross. And the passerbyers said this, they said, hey, you, you who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Somewhere along the line, this rumor started that Jesus was going to actually tear down the temple. It's interesting that they couldn't find traction with any of their false testimonies, but the one thing that got their goat, the one thing that they latched onto, the one thing that they thought, this is the traction point, this is where we got him, was when he dared touch the temple. You see, the temple was really, really sacred to, uh, to the Jews. It was a sacred place. The temple had deep meaning to them. The temple was considered the centre of Israelite life. It was the place where religious rituals took place or religious ritual uh, happened in the temple. That's where you went and you did your sacrifices to God. It was the place where the word of God was read. It was the place where the sacred scriptures, the, the, the Torah, the Old Testament, it was the, the place where they actually kept the, uh, what we would call today the Bible, I guess, their Bible. This is the place where they kept it in the temple. Prayers were prayed in the temple. You would pray to God and God would listen to you. When you prayed to him in the temple, sacrifices were made in the temple. The temple was the center of religious Jewish life. Let me say it again. It was the center of religious life and activity. It was a place where they had the greatest expectation of deliverance, of healing, of provision. It was the place where they had the greatest expectation of God hearing their prayers and of God speaking to them. It was the place where they believed they could experience the very presence of of God in the temple. You know, I believe that we're in this unique situation right now where our very faith and what we hang it on is being shaken. You know, we've got an opportunity that's been presented to us right now to develop our faith and our trust in God in new ways. In fact, I think God wants us to learn, if I can put it this way, to walk again with him in the garden. What do I mean by that? If you go back to the beginning, God creates man. And God gives them a place to live. And he says, I want you to walk with me in the very place that you live. They lived in the gardens. It was their dwelling. It was their home. And God says, I want you to walk with me in your home. The garden was the place where they lived. The garden was the place where Adam and Eve had relationship. And God said, I want you to walk with me in that very place where you have relationship. With your wife, with your husband, with your family. I want you to to include me in that very uh, process of relationship. It was a place where they worked. Remember God said, till the ground, look after the ground. Uh, He gave them a task, a job to do. So the garden was also their workplace. And God said, I want you to learn to walk with me in your workplace. You see, God walked with them in their home. And they walked with him in their home. God walked with them in their relationships. They walked with him in their relationships. God walked with them in their workplace. They walked with God in their workplace. They worshipped God in the place where they worked, where they dwelt, where they lived, in the relationships that they had. There was no separation of the sacred side of their life from what we would term the secular side of their life. 
their relationship with God blended into and encompassed every single aspect of their life. Hey, here's a thought. What if we haven't been locked up in our homes? What if we've been locked out of the temple? Let me say it again. What if we haven't been locked out of our homes? What if, for some divine strategic purpose, we find ourselves suddenly locked out of the temple? In other words, what if God is trying to break us out of a mentality that says it all happens in here? It all happens in here. Now, let me just preface by saying this. I believe we will gather back together. We will meet back together. And I am looking forward to that day where we gather back together and we celebrate Jesus on mass with everybody here, where we get to worship together and share communion together. I'm really looking forward to that day, having morning tea together. I really am. But I believe when we come back, God wants it to be different than it was before. Now, when I say that, people straight away jump on form. And we have these camps in the world. And and someone will say, Hillsong is the way you do it. The bigger the church, the better. And you have more influence and you can change nations. Others will say, no, 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 it's impersonal. You need to go to house churches and you need to meet in small groups. That's where you get to pray for one another and be more personal and do the one another's to one another. And there's all kinds of ideas. And when we talk about church and what God wants, we battle and we back wouldn't we argue back and forth about form you know i could show you in acts chapter 2 the birth of the church where it says that they continue with one accord daily in the temple and breaking bread from house to house so we can't say it's just the temple it's just the house to be honest with you i don't think god really cares about the habitat we meet in i think he cares about the heart that's meeting let me say it again i don't think he cares about the habitat i think he cares primarily about the heart Who are we? The people that are gathering, that are gathering to worship, that are gathering to hear the word of God. It's the heart that matters, not so much the habitat. We get caught up on arguments about habitat. How should it be done? I don't think God really cares how it should be done. I just think he wants it done. Let's just grow in passion for God, grow in faith, grow in love for God. But what I'm finding at the moment is this challenge. Can we go out there with the same expectancy that we come into here? Do we live our life out there with the same expectancy that we have when we walk in here? Do we live our life out there with the same passion that we do in here? Can we live our life out there with the same faith that we do in here? You know, when we come to church, we walk in here. And many of us come in here and we walk in here we have this sense of expectation. God will speak to me in this place. God can heal me in this place. God can deliver me in this place. I can find the answer in this place. He can satisfy me in this place. And a lot of people over the years have developed that mentality. We say that, that this is not church. We say that we are church. But the attitude and the mentality that we approach it says a lot more than what's just coming out of our mouth. And I wonder if some of us have this expectation that, hey, it all happens in the temple. The real stuff happens in here. And when we just take the residue out there, but the real stuff happens here. I believe in the power of gathering together. I really do. I believe when we come together, something dynamic happens. But I believe the power of all of us together is really the sum total of the individual power of each person. The power of the corporate gathering is really the sum total of the individual relationships that we're all building with Christ out there in the rest of life. It's the the, the faith that we're living out there. It's the passion that we have out there. It's the devotion that we have, the way we devote ourselves to Jesus in our home, in our workplace, in the marketplace, in our business, in the supermarket. The, The power of our gathering together is when we all come together and it's a bunch of people whose hearts 
are passionate for Jesus. That's the power of this corporate gathering, this thing that we call church. But I wonder whether God's not challenging us right now and he's saying, hey, can you live as passionately for me if you can't gather at the temple? Can you live as fervently for me if you don't have the temple to go to? Can you believe me for miracles and healings and deliverances even if you don't have a temple to gather at? In other words, can you believe me to give you that which the temple itself can't give you? Yeah, sometimes I think people come to church, to the gathering, thinking the gathering can give them something that only Jesus himself can give them. It's really only found in the face of Jesus Christ. Our prize is Jesus Christ. Our prize is relationship with God, not the things that he gives us. It's God himself. And in this season and this time, is it enough to know that God is with you in the place where you are? Or do we need to come into a space in the same way that the Jews did? Do we have this mentality that all the action happens here in this place? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and here's what Paul says. Paul says, do you not know you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Let me say it again. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In other words, here it is. We don't go to a temple where the action takes place. We are the temple where the action takes place. Right now, sitting at home, in your lounge room, on your phone, on your iPad, on your computer, your TV, whatever it is, hey, guess what? You don't need to go somewhere where the action takes place. You don't need to go to a temple where the action takes place. You are the temple where the action takes place. Now, do I want you to come back when we gather? Yes, I do. And should we gather back no matter where we go? Yes, we should. But here's the thing. Wouldn't it be so much better if we gathered back with a different mentality? If we gathered back with a greater understanding that it's not the gathering, it's not the temple, it's not the space, it's the God that we brought in the door with us that's going to make the difference today. It's God himself. It's a relationship that he wants to have with you. And out of that relationship flows all those things that we need and all those desires that we have. We don't go to a temple where the action takes place. We are the temple where the action takes place. We don't come into church to get something. We go out of the church to give something. We say it again, we don't come to church to get something. We go out of the church to give something. Now, does that mean when we come to church we don't get? You and I know that we do. And no one's going to talk me out of that. And I'm sure no one's going to talk you out of that. The blessings of gathering together. The blessings of coming together to worship. The blessings of of standing together and hearing the word of God preached. The blessing of sharing communion. The blessing of fellowship and praying for one another. And Those blessings are amazing. And they're part of the heritage of the body of Christ. They're part of the heritage and the beauty of the church. So we know when we gather together, we know that we get something. We know that we do. But what I'm saying is this. How different would it be? Let me give you a picture. Anyone ever seen those movies where the two teams, the uh, basketball, whatever, uh, NFL, you see it a lot in American basketball films. They go out and they play the game. And they've dribbled around and they've passed, they've shot. And then what happens? The game finishes, they shake hands and they go back to the locker rooms. And you've got two contrasting locker rooms. One is the locker room of the team that's been defeated. And they're sitting in that locker room. And all they're doing is they're trying to work out why they lost. Trying to work out why they couldn't win. 
It's like coming into church and you're dragging yourself in, thinking that there's a cup of magic water in here. It's nowhere else. You've got to come in here and get a a drink of water because you're parched and dry because it's been so hard out there in the world and so difficult, so strenuous. It's, It's like... Coming in here to, 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 to grab your last gasp breath of air. Now, I'm not saying any of that is wrong. Uh, if you come to church and that's you, praise God, my prayer for you is that you would find it. But you don't find it in the temple. You find it in Jesus. You find it in Jesus. Matter of fact, if you're coming to the temple to find that stuff, you'll probably jump from temple to temple to temple. You won't stay for long because you'll realize that there's nobody there that can give it to you. Nobody in that building can give you what you're looking for if you're looking for them to meet the needs that only God himself can meet and the needs that God himself desires to meet in your life and my life. But then change the camera angle and go to the locker room of the basketball team that won. And they're in that room and what are they doing? They are celebrating They are excited about what has happened. They're not excited. They're not caught up in what's going on in the room. They're excited about what just happened before they got into the locker room. It's the difference between coming to church because you're just dragging in, diving into church, hoping that God will do something, as opposed to coming to church, excited and celebrating what God has been doing. Can you see the difference? You know, once upon a time, the church led the world in architecture. We led the world in music. We produced the best art. We ran the best businesses. We ran the best educational facilities. We knew how to take the presence of God. We knew how to take our faith and we knew how to make it work outside the walls of the temple. Maybe this is a divine opportunity for each of us to have a good look at our own lives and to think about our life. Do we live the same kind of faith outside the walls of the temple as we do inside? Do we believe God for things outside there as much as we can believe God for things in here? Do we trust that God can speak to us in our workplace as loud and as clear as he can speak to us here in the walls of the church? Do we believe that the way God uses us here to encourage, to bring life, to maybe bring healing, deliverance, do we believe that God can use us in the same ways outside the walls of the church? You know, these physical walls of the church, we, we gather in and, and uh, you know, so many people don't really know what goes on inside the walls of a church. And you know what? The truth of the matter is it doesn't really matter because we're not expecting them to come on in here to experience God or to see somebody that's passionate about Jesus. I think God wants us to go out into their world. Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he emphasised go into all the world and make disciples. Go and have influence. Go and show these people what a person that's sold out to me, that trusts me through good times and bad. Go and show them what it looks like to walk with me on the top of a mountain and show them what it looks like for a person of God to walk with Jesus in the bottom of a valley. Reflect the reality of a life lived with God to the rest of the world. What a great chance we've got right now to do it, whether we like it or not. Bless you guys.